have you ever seen a Judy Dench role where you were like, mm, she could have done better? Uh, I even if I even if I thought that was true, I would never say it out loud. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on, one of you nuts has got any guts? What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you, but what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let the healing begin. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. So this week at the supposed release of Tulip Fever, we are taking a look at that screenwriter's previous work. Uh, which is 2005's Pride and Prejudice. So we're looking at Pride and Prejudice and Judgment, specifically Snap Judgment. And to do that, I have a return guest. I have Samantha Sanders, who is the contributing editor at Audiences Everywhere. So thank you for coming on back. Thank you, David. I am, as you know, super, super excited. Yes, you have been uh, <laughs> telling all of Twitter how excited you are about this, which is great. And if and if you hear this episode and you want to hear another episode with her, um, you can check out our review of Elle uh, earlier this year. So be sure to go back into the archives and check that out. So before we get started here, do you want to talk to the people out there about audiences everywhere? Maybe some of your more talented writers? I'm just... You know, whatever you want to put out there. Yeah. Okay. So Audiences Everywhere is a collective of uh, film lovers and uh, we're contributors from all around the world, hence the everywhere part. Um, It's been a great experience as a writer because you get to forge relationships with these other regular contributors and you have friends in Australia, you have friends in New Zealand, you have friends everywhere now. So it's a a really cool thing. Um, It's interesting, I think, to be an international film site. Yeah. Um, I think people tend to kind of in pockets so yeah that's that's who we are it's a very positive uh oriented website um and we kind of take on all different genres um i know one of the things that i specialize in there is true crime Mm -hmm. so i have an ongoing column on tuesdays and thursdays where i take a look at true crime documentaries true crime um, related movies as they're released those are sometimes few and far between Mm -hmm. um usually i end up talking a lot about podcasts but that's (laughs) cool that's where the zeitgeist is right now podcasts are terrible Um, i'm sorry you have to talk about that the worst worst. (laughs) yeah so if 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 anybody hasn't seen it um I, i encourage you to take a look at audiences everywhere all right, awesome. So before um, I talk about the, psych- the psychology of judgment, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? I do. So I came into this a hater. Um, <laughs> so I was I always was the best way to, to go into watching a movie. <laughs> Screw this. <laughs> I have a very deep and long-standing relationship with the uh, BBC version, mm-hmm. um, which came out in 1995, so ten years before this version that we're talking about. Um, and if by any chance someone has not seen that film, um, that would, I would be really me, by it. the way, <laughs> <gasps> it's only five and a half hours long. We could do it. Right Is now. that all? <laughs> yeah. We could have this done by tomorrow. No problem. <laughs> yeah. I think it's usually, um, I don't think they give it away for pledge drives anymore, but mm-hmm. I think it was a, a workhorse for that for a long right. time, but I, I'm pretty sure you can find it anywhere. Um, yeah. So that's kind of the the way that I came into this, although I had read the book before as a teenage girl um, who loved Jane Austen, who loved um, 
Jane Eyre was my other favorite book. Mm, all of these That's of one of my favorite books. Romantic, That's, really? Yeah, yeah, love it. I I haven't read it since I was a teenager, and I think I'd like to go back. I to read it. it for the first time maybe three years ago because it's my wife's favorite book. So really, yep. okay, yep. And it was engaging. Oh, very much so. Yes, I love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure I will talk in lots of annoying ways about <laughs> the differences between this film, which I actually enjoy quite a bit. And um, and this was my first time watching it, mm. and the 1995 version I know and love. Um, the themes of judgment are obviously the same in that one. Um, but the other film recommendation I had is from 85, so 10 years further back, um, and that's Merchant Ivory's A Room with a View. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that was the debut of Helena Bonham Carter. That sounds right. So yeah. she's, yeah, she's a young ingenue, and she's... Um, wooed in Italy by um, Julian Sands before he got creepy. and um, That sounds like a dream already. Yeah. Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Judy, Dent, Judy Dench is also in that one, so there's a through line. Nice. Um, yeah, but it's, it's very much about how she's engaged to Daniel Day-Lewis, who's a really staid, proper English gentleman. <laughs> it's my favorite Daniel Day-Lewis role because he's so completely unlike any other role he's ever right. played. Um nice. Yeah, so it, it, there's lots of snap judgments in that, too, and lots of overcoming prejudices. So right. those are my two recommendations. Okay, nice. I like it. Um, unbelievably, I haven't seen either one of those movies, so I'm going to have to get to work. I have like seven and a half hours of movie watching to do now, so, yeah. so I appreciate <laughs> that. All right, so we are going to take a quick break. I'll talk about judgment, and then we will bring Samantha back to talk about Pride and Prejudice, the lesser version. Hey, people. My name is Peter, and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is I may review movies I grew up watching, or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. Welcome back. So we are going to talk in the psychological section today about judgment. Uh, so, So there's some really simple definitions out there. It's just when you evaluate evidence in order to make a decision. Uh, And there's four uses that it has. There's the informal, which is just your opinions expressed as facts. The informal and psychological, which is used in reference to kind of the quality of the cognition and capabilities of particular individuals. And this is usually referred to as wise decisions. And then there's the legal aspect. It's used in the context of a legal trial and refers to a finding, a statement, or a ruling after weighing this evidence. And then there's religious judgment, uh, which is usually used in reference to the concept of salvation and refers to the judgment of God in determining heaven or hell for human beings. All right, so now that we got most of that out of the way, we're going to look at the experience of making judgments and being judgmental, because I think in this movie we have at least two characters who are pretty judgmental. All right, so this article was written by Dr. Greg Enriquez, um, and it's it's about that, that idea of being judgmental. So sometimes, if you're defining judgmental, it has to do with being overly critical in a way that's really not even helpful. And this is what gets to the heart of the issue of snap judgments, which is really what we're going to be talking about. So when we make judgment in ways that are harmful or negative, then we should be trying to avoid these as best we can. So how do we know how to make constructive 
judgments as opposed to problematic ones. So this is obviously really complicated, but he lists eight key ways, eight key things that are useful to keep in mind when judging other people. First is empathy. So if you're evaluating someone else, their actions or their personality, you really have to understand where they're coming from, their their history, the experiences that went into the decisions that they're making. So you can sit back and watch someone make a poor decision, but if you could go back into their life and see the lessons they've learned from their parents and how they were raised, you might have a better understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. Second is called something called the values frame dynamic. So this refers to what values are being used to frame this evaluation and why. So are they absolute, like is it they're always a right decision, or are things relative? Um, for example, there are people out there who claim that it is wrong to be gay. So what are you enacting exactly? Where are your values coming from? Like, are your values coming from your religion? And if that person doesn't have that background, should you really be judging them for that? Third is the power dynamic. So, so if your judgments carry a lot of influence, then the dynamics are really different as opposed to if they do not. So you have to keep in mind how much, how much power and privilege you have and what impact your judgment will make. Fourth is the person versus the situation. So there's a lot of research out there that says when we judge other people, we tend to blame their acts on a person's personalities, on the person's personality rather than the variables in the situation. And on the other hand, when we make mistakes, we blame it on the situation. It's not that I'm a bad person. I was just put in a bad situation. So if we can kind of flip that around and remember that the situation is powerful, we might be less judgmental. Fifth is the person versus the act dynamic. So it's important to remember that not all behaviors are created equal. So in order to maintain this non-judgmental attitude, which is what we should want, um, the idea is to separate these, these acts that people are doing that you don't agree with from the person. Do not define them by that. That is not a person who stole. That is a person who is in a situation and did this action, but it doesn't mean they're a bad person necessarily. Sixth is the open versus the closed dynamic. So of course we have to be really careful. You don't want to be gullible. You don't want to just believe anything that someone says. But if if you've made a judgment and then new data shows up, then we have to be open to changing our minds and not just sticking to this original judgment. Uh, because if you just stick to the original judgment, you're kind of ignoring evidence, and that's not fair to anyone in the situation. Uh, number seven is the shallow versus the expert knowledge dynamic. So a lot of times people make really strong judgments based on stereotypes, based on one snapshot of, of a situation, and we don't, we don't have this deep knowledge of it. You feel like, I saw what I needed to see, and I've made my decision about that person. Whereas if you were to go, go out of your way and put in some work and gaining knowledge about the situation that they're in, you might come to a different decision and be a little bit more fair. Uh, lastly, number eight, the optimistic versus pessimistic dynamic. So, of course, if you're overly optimistic, that's a problem. We talked about gullibility just a second ago. Um, so that creates its own problems. But all research points to the fact that pessimistic judgments, uh, judgments about others are much more likely to be damaging. So yes, if you're too optimistic, you're be gullible and you can get fooled. But if you're too pessimistic, you can make judgments about people that are going to do lasting damage and create harm. All right, so this last article about judgment and judging people uh, found on a site called Social Psych Online. Uh, and it's about how we judge each other um, and the ways in which we do it. 
So I think a lot of us worry that we're being judged kind of on a more than a daily basis, on a minute by minute basis, whether you're being judged at work for your performance, whether you're being judged by your, your partner, by how you interact with them. There's a myriad of ways that we feel judged. But remember that judgment is kind of automatic and not always negative. Uh, there's some research out there that shows we can form really accurate impressions of people in just a few seconds. But what kind of judgments do we make? So yes, there are a lot of ways we make judgments and a lot of things we make judgments about, but there's really, you can boil it down to three key judgments. For a long time, the research said there were two judgments, and it was just how warm people are and how confident they are. But more recently, uh, the field of psychology has kind of expanded this. So the new evidence shows that the warmth judgments are really two different other judgments, which are morality and sociability. So those are two of them. First, morality. So when we judge someone's morality, we judge them based on how they treat other people. But if you want to get really specific, this judgment is about whether they treat others in right and principled ways. And of course, you have to remember that all of this is subjective. My right as far as morality may be very different from yours. So honesty, trustworthiness, and sincerity, for example, are things that are judgments of morality. Now, sociability, when we judge someone's sociability, we judge them based on how they treat other people in ways to increase affectionate relationships. So this type of judgment could include how likable, how kind, how friendly the person is. And then we have competence. So when we judge a person's competence, we judge them on how capable we think they are at accomplishing their goals. So whenever you judge a person's skill level, confidence, intelligence, those are all competence judgments. So the most important of these is morality. So of course we form impressions of people based on all three of these key judgments, but morality is definitely the most important. There's a study out there that actually asks people what the most important piece of information would be for them to form an impression of a complete stranger. And given the options, people were always more interested in learning about a person's moral character rather than any other traits. So it's not that people necessarily just want to know about a person's moral character. When we do learn about a person's honesty and trustworthiness, though, it factors into our opinions of them more than other information. This has been reproduced in many, many studies, and that makes sense. If we, you know, we are kind of in social contracts with people, so we need to know that we can trust them. Otherwise, we'll never feel safe. We'll never feel like we can kind of turn our back on anybody. So sociability and competence, what about those? So a really big part of how we judge other people is on moral character, and it turns out that this also affects how we see people's sociability and competence. There's this new research out there that shows that whether we think sociability or competence are positive qualities will depend on whether we think the person is moral or not. So a person could be very social and very competent, but if we don't feel like they're honest or trustworthy, then we'll see those things as negative. So one way to look at it is a person's sociability or competence tells us about how good they are at reaching their goals, whereas morality tells us what the goals are. So if a person in our mind has good goals, then we can like them if they're sociable and competent because, because we think they can actually achieve those goals. But if a person has bad goals, then we dislike them if they're sociable and competent because in this case, that trait will tip us off to these person being able to accomplish these bad goals goals. So there's one study out there that people saw competence as a desirable quality for their friends, but undesirable for their enemies. So that kind of lines up there. So one interesting thing in this article is that people only have positive impressions of the sociable and competent characters 
if those characters are also moral. And this is in a study where they're looking at fictional characters. And people had negative impressions of sociable and competent characters when they were described as immoral. So this all kind of lines up with with the fact that morality is kind of the most important and everything else is affected by our judgment of of that kind of moral standard to begin with. So it's interesting that like, you know, this is uh, this article is one way to to tell us that people are inherently judgmental and we absolutely are. But I think the most important thing to take away is that our impressions of other people come down to these three really simple judgments, morality, sociability and competence, but especially that first one. That, that morality will really dominate our impressions. So I think this actually really applies to the movie because there's a lot of snap judgments made and there's a lot of insults thrown around that when people are not supposed to hear them. So that will immediately have the other person make a judgment of that person's morality. Well, they're not a good person. Look at the way they're treating these other people. Look at the way they're treating me. So even if they are doing good things, like if they're being sociable and competent, the other person is still going to see that as negative because like, well, look what they do with that. So I think that really, really kind of ties it. All right. So that's it for the psychology section. Uh, we're going to take a little break and then bring back Samantha to talk about Pride and Prejudice. Watched the movie. Check. Popped the popcorn. Check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home. Check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists, and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new, or possibly old, breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, uh, so we're back now, and I want to start out kind of talking about our histories with this movie or with this property, uh, since this is the first time you've seen it. For me, uh, I'm going to go first because this will be short, so you're, you're going to hate me in about 10 seconds. Um, <laughs> I've never read a single Jane Austen novel. I've never mm -hmm. seen a single Jane Austen film that is set, period. Like I've seen, obviously, there's all these updates, you know, like... I think sure. Emma was a uh, was based on Jane Austen. I think Clueless was based loosely on Jane Austen. So I've seen mm -hmm. movies like that, but I, you know, I haven't seen Pride and Prejudice. I haven't seen Sense and Sensibility. None mm -hmm. of that stuff. So this was kind of my introduction to Jane Austen. Like, of course, everybody knows the style, and like, I, I feel like I feel like I knew this story, even though I haven't read it and I hadn't seen it. Like, it's just a part sure. of culture at this point. Um, so I had no history with this whatsoever. Um, but you said earlier, like, you kind of started with Jane Austen in high school. So I assume this is mm -hmm. kind of a, a treasured commodity for you, Jane Austen in general. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's funny, as an adult, I have never really... I don't really watch romances. They never really resonated with me um, for whatever reason, but mm -hmm. these definitely uh, swoop me away and make me feel like a 13-year-old girl. So obviously she was doing something right um, that she's remained popular all these years. Right, 
Yeah, absolutely. And this is a movie as I as I sat down to watch it, like I, I think we always have these kind of preconceived notions, especially of things like Jane Austen, like kind of maybe expect it to be a little bit stuffy, quote unquote mm. boring, um, and didn't expect to really to really get into this. But after about mm. ten minutes, like I was in. Like this is this was really enjoyable. Yeah. Um I like the cast a lot. Uh, although it's, you know, we'll talk about, but we'll talk about the cast later. But I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this, or I guess surprised at how quickly I kind of bought into this world mm. and was just kind of transported as I'm watching the movie, especially with so many recognizable faces in this movie. I think oh, sometimes yeah. that can be a detriment. When Donald Sutherland shows up with his ridiculous mutton chops, uh, you know, there are, there are moments where you're like, it takes you out of it a little bit, but I think the film does a really good job <laughs> of kind of putting us in this world. So I really enjoyed the experience. So what about you? You coming in with all this hate in your heart for this movie. Uh, <laughs> what was it like to to see this kind of enacted with these different actors in this different style? Yeah, I will say it was almost more indifference. I don't really remember when this one came out. Um, I do remember having a reaction at the time like, nah, I'm not going to see that. I've got all of my P&P needs met by the BBC, <laughs> so I don't, <laughs> I don't need another remake. Um, yeah, so... I think immediately my instinct was to sort of play the actors against the actors, the, mm. um, the story against the story. And there are some significant differences. Um, for me, the biggest surprise, and I'm sure we'll get into this more is, um, I love Kira Knightley, um, in general, and I've always loved her, but she, I definitely didn't see her in this role. Um, but when you watch it, yeah, she, she's a beautiful, um, version of Elizabeth Bennett, who's mm -hmm. a character that I think so many women identify with. Right. Um, and what's interesting in this one compared to Jennifer Ela, who's in the BBC version, Kira mm -hmm. um, Knightley just seems much more young and girlish, which mm -hmm. I think, you know, is appropriate for the character. Um, she doesn't have perfect hair in the role. You know, <laughs> things are dirty around her, yeah. which is very different from the other version. Yeah, and also the I'm I'm not completely sold on this Mr. Darcy, although I did enjoy him. Right. All right. We will definitely get into that because I think we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna align on that. Uh, but I think we're gonna start with the direction. Um, and this movie is uh, directed by Joe Wright, which is something as I was going into this movie, kind of made me feel better about watching this because I really mm. enjoyed I've really enjoyed a bunch of his movies, specifically uh, Atonement and Hannah. I think were both really excellent and maybe underseen. But he also did uh, Anna Karenina, which is a really interesting movie. I wouldn't go as far as to call it good, um, but he. He takes a lot of chances, and that's another uh, Kira Knightley performance that I that I really enjoy. Of course, Ooh. you know he also did stuff like Pan, um, which is not good <laughs> on really any level. Um, so you never really know what you're going to get. But I thought, like, okay, especially with Atonement, like this guy knows he knows period work. So I'm like, okay, you know, there's there's a good chance that there's going to be some good stuff here. Um, and yeah. I really did appreciate. Uh, the direction. There's some really clever shots here. Uh, there's a early in the film when they're all kind of all the sisters are listening in to kind of the, the mm -hmm. gossip from the family. I love the way mm -hmm. the basically everyone, all the women are in shadow except our main character. And it's a really subtle, yes. cool way to kind of show us, okay, yes, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on. There's going to be a lot of drama happening, but this is the person that this is about. This is who you need to focus right. on. And I really like that little touch. And there's lots of little touches like that. What did you think of, uh, of his direction here? I, you know, it's difficult because I do think this is too short 
a time to condense the story into. I did a little reading um, in preparation for talking with you because I wanted to find out exactly how the director went about condensing the story. And he had a really interesting justification, which makes sense, which is that he wanted to remove everything that was not strictly about this love story. So there are a lot of other side plots. There are other characters. um, And there are scenes that are in this film that are also compressed from either the novel or the earlier version. Right. Um, But no, that makes sense. I mean, that's definitely a choice. And I, I found myself thinking, like, this is really economical, the direction. And... I didn't necessarily find myself missing anything. Mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence, but I, I enjoyed it. There were, there were some things, I don't know if you've ever watched a film on uh, Amazon video. Have you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like any movie on, on Amazon streaming. Yeah. Yeah. What I hadn't realized, I watched this on my desktop and they, if you accidentally hit oh, the Oh, uh, you're talking the about mouse. the overlay? The, like, yes! here's all the little I tidbits. I've never and, seen yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they've been doing that for forever, but I never happened to accidentally hit the mouse or whatever. Right. But it, the one thing that I they did explain, they did explain was the the shots of Darcy's hand. Did you notice that? I actually, I actually have that written down as one of my favorite shots. It's the yeah. shot, shot of their hands touching. Like, it's it's not subtle. Um, but I don't no. think a love story like this should be. I, I, I don't I don't think there should be any mystery about how these two feel about each other. And it's a real challenge because the way they're portraying it outwardly, it's not your standard flirtatious love story. It's very snarky. Right. It's very they're they're very distant with each other. But they have that one shot, I think, as one of them is getting into into a carriage and their hands touch and they zoom in on that like they make you notice. <laughs> and I, I really like that. I like that as a director, he was like, OK, for all the idiots in the cheap seats, like, look, <laughs> this is important. Yeah. Like, Look at this. And I really appreciated that. I love that moment um, where they do touch hands in the carriage and it lingers, the camera lingers for a moment on her hand and you think it's going to stay there. And then it shows Darcy walking away and you mm-hmm. see him kind of like cup his hand in that way you do after you, you know, shake hands with a famous person yeah. or you do touch something that you have a big crush on. And you almost kind of try to make it tangible by sort mm-hmm. of like cupping your hand like that and holding on to the moment a little while longer. And I yeah. thought that was a great touch. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. The other thing I think he does really well is in scenes with almost no dialogue um there's what i'm really talking about here is the dance sequences like you have a dance at the very beginning and then a dance kind of in the middle and they're in very different places one of them being more uh more i guess common folk so they're having they're having a blast they're having a great time and you can really feel that and then there's a dance sequence later in the film which is very kind of stodgy and upper crust and there's it's almost joyless and i like the difference that he does those yeah Yeah. So I, I, and that takes some skill. It'd be very easy to just be like, well, here's another, here's another dance moment. I guess we'll do something similar. And I like how different they are. Um, Another moment that I thought was not at all subtle, but I also enjoyed (laughs) it was this sort of um, sexual awakening she's having in the, when she goes to visit Pemberley and she's looking at all the ivory statues. Oh yes. And there's actually (laughs) a moment with a camera, um, you know, like zooms in on a butt. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, oh, I, okay. okay, so as I was watching this movie, that scene happened and I was like, what is going on? What is, come on, guys, <laughs> like, it's so... I had the same feeling, but I was like, I guess I'm just going to go with this. I yeah, it's like just it. so out of place from the rest of the film. You're just like, 
did we just yeah. walk onto another set? Why? <laughs> what? And then you're totally right. I mean, it's very clearly an awakening scene, but I was like, it's definitely okay. like an elbow shoving into your ribs. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like it's very yeah. much over the top. And I was just like, and I think so much of the rest of the film is so, uh, it's so subtly done like that these moments really stand out and there's, you know, there's, mm-hmm. of course, we'll probably talk about favorite scenes, the scene in the rain, which is one of my favorite scenes, but it's also really well shot. It's really easy mm. to have a scene in the rain and not be able to tell what's going on. And I like, mm-hmm. I like not only how it sets the mood and what happens there, but just the way it's filmed is, is really, really well done. And I also like mm-hmm. seeing the kind of beauty of Darcy's life. Like there's this slow reveal of that courtyard. Yes. And there's a scene where um, our main character is just walking in the fog and she she practically glows in that scene. And yeah. a lot of that has to do with the lighting that the director chooses. And he has a really wonderful eye, not only for Kira Knightley in his movies, but just for like mm-hmm. natural lush beauty. And I think you need that in a movie like this. You have to see what this will mean for her not only as a young woman moving in, moving up in the world, but like just what her life is going to look like and give us mm. something to care about because these two characters are constantly almost at each other's throat, especially at the beginning of this movie. We need something mm-hmm. to hold on to. And I think that beauty gives us that. Yeah. The, this is not a pun, but the landscape is very grounding in the film. Yeah. Um, you kind of always go back to it and it's a nice contrast between the state kind of stuffy rooms that they're in all day and then consistently, no matter which character, there's always some moment where they're out in nature. And I think when you're watching it, you just instantly calm down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, England was landscape crazy at that time. As right. I think they are now. And yeah, I mean, that was a hobby. You go and you walk outside and you look at things. And right. <laughs> that was your entertainment. So I, I feel <laughs> like that was very true to um, shoot of the period. Yeah, I think the last thing I really want to mention as far as direction is I think Joe Wright does a really good job of staying with these moments because there's a lot of awkward humor in this movie, like just humor that's based on like just taking a look at that person going, did you just really say that? I'm just going to let that linger. And I like how he he has the kind of courage to just have that hesitation there and just stay with the shot just one more second because you really have mm-hmm. to feel like because you have all these moments of kind of flirtation between these two main characters and something always goes wrong in the midst of right. that flirtation. And you have to stay with that moment to really let it hit home. Like, oh, yeah, it's not going to work this time either. Like, even that scene in the rain, as I'm watching this, of course, never having read the book or seen the movie, I was like, oh, here is where it all comes together. Here is where they're going to they're gonna hook up and they're going to get married. It's going to be great. And it just ends in this really awkward way. Like, oh, this was yes. going so well and uh, now it's not. So I'm going to go home now. And you're left in, as the audience just kind of like, oh, man, like we got to go through more of this. And it's an enjoyable. <laughs> horrible journey to go through that but you really are rooting for that moment but then of course something happens to kind of screw that up and we got to get back there again and i really like mm. that not only about i mean it's going to be tough to talk about the script because it's like what do you i mean this is a classic of literature like i'm going to say like yeah it's kind of crappy this uh this jane austen like what was, <laughs> it's like talking about a shakespeare adaptation and getting before. critical like eh, yeah but i really do like that he's willing to stay with those moments Mm, yeah, that that's a great point about the awkward moments. I can recall the the moment where Mr. Collins, the very awkward, um, oh god, he's the worst. Reverend, <laughs> uh, he's yeah, he's the worst in both adaptations in like terrific ways. I feel so yes. bad for both of those actors, but they're just oily and greasy in the way that they should be. Um, yep. They're terrific, but 
Yeah, there's a moment where he goes and tries to talk to uh, Mr. Darcy, and of course he's like a foot and a half shorter than him, and he's kind of yes. doing it him, him, and <laughs> it, that, that's one where it just goes on two beats too long, and oh. you just feel so crushed for so, him. Yes. Oh, the, the other thing I did want to mention that I think is so great and um, really something I identified with as a woman watching this was the dynamic between... Um, Elizabeth and Caroline, I, I believe it's Caroline Bingley, but it's the Bingley sister. They cut one of the sisters from the book. Um, mm. So there's just the one concentrated sister in this, this adaptation. Um, but the conversations they have with one another, mm-hmm. the looks they have between yes. one another, the pauses be- before the curtsies are so mm. icy that yeah. I could kind of feel that in my stomach. It made me so uncomfortable as I was watching, yeah. and I thought that was a, a great touch. Yeah, that's a great point. Kelly Riley plays that part, and she's mm-hmm. probably, as as far as like some of the supporting characters, it may be my favorite performance in the movie. Like I just think she's absolutely perfect in that role, and it was one of those performances. Scary. Yeah, it was one of those performances where I was like, why isn't she in more things? She's so good. She's so fantastic. Yeah. So so yeah. speaking of that, let's kind of transfer over to the acting. So of course we'll start with Kira Knightley. So I always, always have to be careful with what I say about Kira Knightley because, okay, so have you ever had one of those actors or actresses that you enjoy their performances and you're not really sure why like you just like them and it's not really about if it's good or not like that's Kira Knightley for me like I know she has it's been Patricia in things Arquette for me oh so there you yeah, go you. yeah so she's been in things that I've really enjoyed and then I talked to other people and people were like actually that's the worst performance of the year mm. and I'm like really I hmm what do I know I guess because I just she has that certain something where I just like watching her on screen so it's funny we were kind of talking on on Twitter uh with another mutual friend of ours and kind of talking about that she was the best miscast uh character Mm -hmm. ever in this so what did you think of Keira Knightley as Elizabeth Bennett I thought she was um sort of beautiful and I don't know if I'm ever saying this word correctly Janine I don't know mm-hmm. if that's how you say it. Um, and we'll go with that. Kind of fragile. Yeah, again, <laughs> yeah. almost kind of fragile in this role and vulnerable. And I, I feel like she brought a vulnerability to it that I hadn't seen in the other adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was terrific. The the interplay between her and Donald Sutherland oh, was so beautiful good. and yeah. lovely and rang true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there, there was chemistry. She was great at having chemistry with Darcy. And I think that's the main... Um, hurdle that has to be overcome in this film. Do you feel like she's carrying those moments? Because I feel like watching Matthew McFadden in this movie, I just, I don't get much from him. I get a lot from her, so I feel like she is really kind of pulling him along in those moments. I, he's the only actor yeah. in this movie where I'm kind of like, ah, I need a better yeah. Mr. Darcy than this. There is one. <laughs> um, that was your opening. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, no, I actually thought he was fine. I, I, when I saw a picture of him, I thought, ah, that guy's kind of plain, which is maybe a horrible thing to think. But like, I didn't feel like he could kind of bring the passion to it. Mm-hmm. But the one thing he did bring to it um, is a kind of awkwardness that wasn't. Oh, he's, in a he's got that in spades. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's another way of looking at that character. You could um, you could say that he's very haughty and he's very um, self important. Well, mm-hmm. you could say he's an awkward guy who's not great with conversation, right. who, of course, comes from a different class and is probably ill at ease. And I think that was the direction they went with this, which um, it's it's not as interesting, I guess, a takedown. 
-hmm. Like I don't, I didn't feel like she was taking him down a peg as she was with in the Colin Firth adaptation. Um, so it wasn't as, as sort of satisfying in that way. Right. But yeah, at the end of it, I, I had affection for him in that moment you were talking about in the rain. That scene is interesting because I think both the performer and the director do a great job of, for the first time, seeing things through Darcy's eyes. Yeah. Whereas I think the rest of the film, you're very much keyed into Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that moment, you're completely on his side and you just think, say the right thing and you can you can close the deal, just say the right thing. Right. And you can feel that moment just slipping away and, yeah. and then it slips away. Yeah, I mean, I think that's easily his best moment in the film. Like, I don't think it's even close. Yeah. It's interesting because I think the the language and the script, the, the book it's based on is good enough that it pulls you along, even if he's not the greatest Darcy. So then when that yeah. scene happens, you're still there. You're still where there yes. with these two people. So sometimes like a script can just kind of lift up a performance to a good enough level. I think your description of him mm. as like, he's fine. Seems about right. Like he's not, he's not yeah. God awful, but he's also not, he's not elevating anything here either, which is, which is kind of a shame. Um, but you know, that's, that's what you get sometimes with casting. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting to me about the casting in this film is, okay, so the sisters in this movie is like a who's who of Hollywood at this point. We've yeah. got Rosamund Pike as Jane, Jenna Malone as Lydia, Carrie Mulligan as Kitty. Like, this is yeah. a star-studded cast, and nobody knew back then. So was there a particular performance of the other sisters that stood out to you? The only other thing I've seen Rosamund Pike in, <laughs> I believe she's in Handmaid's Tale, isn't she? Um, I'm not sure, going. but she's also she was also in Gone Girl, um, so that's what I, I had see- in my head. It's, so it's very disturbing to see her as this very kind, <laughs> sweet <laughs> character. But yeah, um, I thought she was terrific. And um, this is another another version of um, Pride and Prejudice, where the two main sisters look nothing at all alike. Yep. <laughs> which is kind of funny. I mean, they look like they're from different planets. They're both beautiful, yes. but yeah, I mean, she's got a wonderful expressive face. She's got a, a warm quality. So I thought she was perfect for Jane. Yeah. I really liked her performance. I think. And so I want to ask you, maybe this is just, this is what happens in the novel too, or in other versions, but I had, a, I had trouble with Lydia. I had trouble with Jenna alone because she's kind of obnoxious mm-hmm. and giggly and it seemed over the top to me, but I wasn't sure if this was mm-hmm. just a part of the character. So how did you react to Lydia? Um, I think that's how those Lydia and Kitty, that's how they're portrayed in the book as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they seem very annoying <laughs> and they came, they read as very annoying. And I think that's the point. Right. But yeah, it's, it's kind of that, you know, when you get older, you don't want to be around two giggly 15 year old girls. and Right. Yeah, they pulled true. that off. That's true. <laughs> yeah, there were moments where they were shrieking, and I was turning yeah. down the volume on the TV. Yeah, I was like, "That's like enough." <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the like the kind of undercover heart of this movie though is Donald Sutherland. Like he does mm-hmm. a lot with not a lot of dialogue, and he especially has that moment later when he basically tells his daughter, "Like if you would have married him, I would never would have forgiven you." You know, to like yeah. take her side in that moment. And it's so moving. And it's, I mean, some of it is the baggage we bring along with actors. Like Donald Sutherland is like, to me, he is that kind of really soft, friendly, older guy. So when, when he says things like this, it like just gets in your heart immediately. And I love seeing all these sequences with him and all these women. And you can tell he loves all of them so much. But there are moments where he's just kind of like, okay. 
that's kind of enough of this. Can I, can we end this conversation now? And it's so endearing and he's, and and it's tough to pull that off without, without feeling like, Oh, you don't even like your family. Like you're so annoyed with everyone. Like it's that perfect balance. Yeah. That's a great point. Um, yeah, there's the, the wonderful scene where he kind of pulls, he tells, um, Mary, who's sort of the dour piano playing, very uptight sister, <laughs> tells her to stop playing. She plays and sings horribly. She's playing at a ball where everyone's trying to help. That's them. right. And she breaks down in tears and he just in a very fatherly way kind of finds her and pulls her into him for a hug. Yeah, just sweet. And the <laughs> the tears in Donald Sutherland's eyes. Um, I don't think I'm giving anything away. They get married. So oh, we can spoil the whole thing. It's fine. Don't worry. (laughs) Donald Sutherland's (laughs) eyes when he's talking um, with Elizabeth and giving her um, his permission to to marry Darcy. Um, Yeah. Yeah. They'll they'll talk. It it all really works. One of the great father-daughter relationships in all of literature. Probably the greatest, I would argue. All right. Well, until I read the book, I will take your word for it. Um, (laughs) It's one of those books that's been on my list to read for... I mean, decades at this point. So I really need to just yeah. get to it. Um, so what did you think of Judy Dench's performance here as Lady Catherine de Bourgh? She's terrific in everything. She's kind <laughs> of faultless at Judy, this point, right? Like, Have you ever seen a Judy Dench role where you were like, mm, she could have done better? Uh, I even if I Even if I thought that was true, I would never say it out loud. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I will never critique Judy Dench's performance. Like, you know, you're Judy Dench. You do whatever you like. Yeah. Show up for two hours a day. Yeah. She's just so wonderful at being like, I'm trying to think of the exact word, but she is really intimidating in this movie. I think it's her eyes. She has those terrific, like almost hooded eyes that can cut you from across the room. And it makes us, I think it makes us love Kira Knightley even more when she stands up to her. Mm -hmm. Because like we, Mm -hmm. if you put yourself in that position, it's like, would I have the guts to really stand up to this mm-hmm. woman? Probably not. Like, I would be like, you know Probably what? Not. I'm just going to do something behind your back or I'm going to do exactly <laughs> what you say, but I'm certainly not going to stand up to you and tell you what's what. And Kira Knightley <laughs> pulls off that scene really well. And it'd be really easy for a, for a young actress to just get, you know, acted circles around by Judy Dench. She is Judy Dench yeah. after all, but she really holds her own in that moment. And that really surprised me even as a fan of Kira Knightley I was I was mm. pleasantly surprised by that yeah it was terrific yeah. um another thing that I loved about the direction that was different from the novel and the other adaptation is um the the singing maid who mm. kind of comes through at different times <laughs> um I think she appears three times but she's sort of uh she's a house servant doesn't have a name no one talks to her in the film but she just goes through the house singing she walks past all of these different little scenes that are happening. And I, I I think I'd like to rewatch it again, but it seems that each time she does that, it sort of heralds a new kind of turn in the film. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's Perfect. a really good point. I didn't even think of that, but I think every time she shows up, there's some big changes going on mm-hmm. in the story. That That's a great point. Um, so, so let's talk about the writing a little bit. So you brought up something actually that I was thinking I was watching the movie, but I wasn't sure if I wanted to see it because I don't know anything about this book. Um, but I did feel like that compression you were talking about, like it Mm -hmm. felt like, it felt like there was more there, which is why, you know, as you say, the superior version is almost six hours long because there's so Mm -hmm. much, I mean, but I think he does a good job. They do a good job of compressing this into a story that is still interesting and still engaging Mm -hmm. and really focused on these two main characters. But I did find myself 
kind of wanting more, kind of wanting the details filled mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. He does a great job compressing the story, but I'd argue that what you can't compress is that kind of like delicious kind of pain mm-hmm. and, and hurt that you were talking about where you're sort of like anticipating, you know, you, you want the romance to move forward. Um, and of course, with six hours, you have a lot more time for those things to move slowly <laughs> um, and to develop all the aspects of the characters that aren't necessarily associated with that central storyline. Right. Um, you know, to see Elizabeth interacting with her aunt and uncle, to see um, Darcy interacting um, in ways that don't have anything to do with the love story with Mr. Bingley. I mean, those are tells that, that show their true character, which helps, you know, emotionally connect with them more. So the story is compressed effectively, but you are missing some of those finer points. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what this this book and this script does best is this is a really hard love story to make work. Um, we've kind of talked a bit about how they're kind of constantly either either there's a lot of awkwardness or on her side she is she's kind of she's knocking him down a peg or two uh, mm-hmm. during this whole movie, and it kind of it reminds me of an, an imbalanced version of like uh, Beatrice and Benedict from Shakespeare. Um, where they're kind of mm. constantly going at each other's throats. And it, and I think even though that love story works mm-hmm. by the end of Much Ado, you there's still a moment where you're like, really? Are these two really in love? Like, <laughs> you just kind of tricked each other into being in love? Like, I guess it kind of <laughs> works. But in this in this story, it really works. And you're really mm-hmm. rooting for them. And I and I caught myself during this movie wondering why. Like, why, why is this working on me? Why mm. is this working? Especially given the kind of the... the I mean, I say the word mediocre, and that has, like, a really negative connotation, but I just Mm -hmm. mean kind of average. This mediocre performance um, coming from Mr. Darcy, and it's kind of a lot Mm -hmm. of it's being carried by her, and yet for some reason, the whole time, I'm still like, this is still really working on me. Like, I really want these two to end up together. So can you offer any insight for me on why you think this love story works despite them kind of constantly bickering? I think it's two things. I, I think part of it is that these are people with personalities. And I think sometimes in love stories and in love story films, that's kind of undercut a little bit. Yeah. Um, you get sort of really stock characters. Um, these are complex characters, even when they're not necessarily the most compelling as they could be. So there's there's kind of everything in their world. There's, there's anger, there's hate, there's uh, boredom, there's happiness, there's, you know, it's one of those like full-fledged looks at a life I guess so that makes them feel more complete Mm. and then I think the other thing is that it's absolutely a really modern love story I think both in literature at the time it was I don't know I'm a literature expert but I would imagine um, a story like this told from a point of view like Jane Austen's would be sort of revelatory oh yeah and then I think um in terms of kind of gameplay and um the rules and all of those other you know, the tinder and everything else that kind of comes into modern romance. I, I think this film speaks to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, there's sarcastic flirting and there's there's all those kinds of things. And I think this doesn't feel tired. It still feels fresh regardless of the year because of that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point. It sounds like kind of what you're saying is that, you know, instead of being these kind of standard romantic characters, like these are two humans and everything that goes along with yeah. that. So it's not just like, yeah. oh, we want them to fall in love because they're the best looking people on screen and they're destined yeah, to be exactly. with one another. Like, no, there's some problems here and they got to work it out if they're going to end up being together. 
Yeah, both yeah. of them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy, especially in this version, to kind of focus on the on the flaws of Darcy, but she's not she's not perfect. <laughs> she's definitely got her own flaws, and she makes her own mistakes too. Uh, like there's there's a lot going on here, and I think I think that's what makes both of these characters, as they're written, so endearing. Is that there's not. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in romantic comedies or comedies in general, you're like, I just want the best for that character. If, so if she wants to yeah. be with him or if he wants to be with her, I'm rooting for that because that would make them happy. Whereas with these, yeah. like you have, you end up taking both of them into account. And especially you mentioned the kind of class structure going on, that it's not a simple mm-hmm. love story where like, oh, these two people fell in love, so they should be together. It's like there's a lot mm-hmm. to take to take into account here. And I think I think this movie does a good job of talking about that. And I think one of the ways it does that is the introduction of Collins into this story. Mm-hmm. Because I think, at least for me, with the untrained eye, like watching this for the first time, you know, you don't really see these huge class differences. Like, yeah, they're a little bit more stodgy. They've got a little bit, you know, more they're they're doing and they're taking into account. But before Collins is introduced, you're like, they seem like good people. You know, they seem okay. Yeah. Every, you know, you can move in between these worlds. And then Collins shows up and it really shows how judged the Bennets are and really just how ugly yeah. and awful society can be. And I think it's, uh, it, it throws, it throws a curveball into the whole proceedings because then you realize, mm. oh, Darcy is a part of that society too. I wonder what mm-hmm. she's walking into if she ends up with mm-hmm. them. And for a half second, you start wondering, should I be rooting for them to end up together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I remember when I was a, a teenager and reading the book, there are a couple instances where you could tell at the time it was supposed to be a real kick, like it was supposed to tell you exactly um, their status. I think one of the scenes is in the movie where someone, I think Darcy says something about, um, you know, it's a very limited environment being in the country. He doesn't like it as much. And then Mrs. Mm. Bennett reacts and says, we dine with four and 20 families. And I remember <laughs> thinking at the time, like, is that a lot or a little? No. <laughs> um, right, right. And you, of course, when you're watching the film, you can kind of tell from context, of course, it's, it's very small compared to the, the worlds he moves in. Yeah. So that the class differences are apparent. It's also apparent from the other direction, which is um, I think her uncle at one point calls Elizabeth a snob mm-hmm. in this version um, for saying that she doesn't want to see Mr. Darcy because he's rich. And of course, that's kind of a bit, but, yeah. um, you know, part of it's rooted in truth. Yeah. And she was, she's just reverse snobbery. So, yeah, it's complicated on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about the production value a little bit. I already kind of talked about the grounds at Darcy's house, which are just absolutely stunning. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where all the money went in, in this movie, for sure. <laughs> and uh, lighting. Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. And also Darcy's house, just the inter- the the inside of his house. Not necessarily all the, you know, the ridiculous ivory sculptures, but, like, the scenes where she's, you know, talking to his sister. And, like, that stuff is all gorgeous and perfect. Just, it looks perfect as it as it should i think it's supposed to be shocking to the audience and shocking to our main character they're like oh my god this is the world you live in as she comes in like wet from the rain and her hair all down and kind of looking messy and i like that i like the way they set that up the things i didn't like so much are the scenes like out in the city with the sisters like all of that just it looks like they didn't spend a lot of money on that like that looks like they're just like oh let's just put this up i guess and we'll have soldiers where they just put like the the bakery up exactly 
Yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking during all of these scenes. It's like, it, it probably came down to like, well, we only have two or three scenes in this city. We'll just, <laughs> you know, we'll put the money elsewhere, you know? And, and also, it probably didn't help that there was a lot more of Jenna Malone in those scenes, and I was already annoyed by her, so then I'm like, tr- <laughs> focusing on everything else, and just like, well, and that looks like shit, and that looks like shit. And, that's, and yeah. it stands out to me, because it's the only scene in the movie that, like, aesthetically doesn't look as it should doesn't look pitch perfect but other than that like yeah exactly it doesn't feel like it's a part of the same movie but the rest of it my god it's just stunning to look at that scene that you were talking about where darcy's walking towards her um in the field and i i think that we're supposed to understand this is basically almost dawn and Mm -hmm. i'm hoping that they filmed it you know at that time of day because it looks exactly like that same quality of light that you only get at a certain time of the morning um, and it lights everyone beautifully and everyone sort of looks tired and magical and beautiful at the same time. Um, so yeah, I guess they put the lighting money where they should. I mean, they really knew what they were doing as far as especially lighting Kira Knightley. Like it's interesting in a movie mm-hmm. where she's kind of rough around the edges and kind of dirty in some scenes and kind of messy. I don't think mm-hmm. there's ever been a movie where someone understood how to light her as well as Joe Wright does mm. in this movie. Like, there are certain sequences where she just looks absolutely stunning and you you can't look away from her. Even if the camera were to move, you would want it to go mm-hmm. back. And I think you need that in this love story. And some of that, of course, is her own physical presence and her own acting. Mm-hmm. But some of that also is the way it's filmed. And he does a wonderful job with her. She has, I, I noticed for the first time watching this, I think she has unusually dark eyes. Yes. So for an actress to have such dark eyes and have them still be so expressive. There are moments where they're absolutely flashing and Mm -hmm. you can't necessarily discern. You can't point to it and say to someone like, wow, I just saw her eyes do something, you know, kind of special there, but you can see it while you're watching. It's like they, the way he filmed her, um, I'd agree. It was, it was really beautiful, captured something. All right. So now we're on to favorite scenes. So what's one of your favorite scenes in this version of Pride and Prejudice. I have a real soft spot for any of the scenes with uh, Elizabeth and Darcy and his sister, Georgiana. Mm -hmm. So I love that scene where um, it's Elizabeth and Georgiana talking because you can tell that the affection there, even if they just met, is genuine, but you can also detect all of the backstory, which is that clearly Darcy has talked about her. Um, And I think that that touches her, and I think that's the first moment where she realizes that she really exists for him in the same way that he exists for her. It's just very sweet. Not necessarily romantic, but just sweet. Right. Yeah, I like the way you put that. That's that's very true. I think there's two scenes for me uh, that I'll immediately think of when I think of this movie. There's that scene in the rain, and there's that particular line reading of mm-hmm. End My Agony, uh, which is so wonderful. And, yeah. and I felt that. Like, I felt that not only for him, but for me. Like, will you two finally... Like, get together. Like, yeah. we've been waiting for this for an hour and a half. Can, can we finally have this? And, of course, the agony yeah. is not over. The agony, if anything, kind of moves up a couple levels. But I just, I yeah. love, I love that line reading. I love that scene. And I also love not only the dance, the dance scenes, but there's actually, right after the dance scene, there's a, there's a shot of, of the two sisters kind of behind what would pass for as bleachers, I guess, and kind of listening in to what Darcy says. And I thought that was a really interesting way to handle it, where we can see everything, but the two men are completely unaware and cannot see Mm -hmm. that they're being watched. And like just the... 
just the look on Kira Knightley's face as she hears this kind of terrible thing that he says about her. Like, it's not as if he's calling her the worst person in the world, but you get why she makes this judgment of him. Like, you totally understand mm-hmm. where she's coming from. And I thought it was such an interesting way to frame that. Instead of just having them stand a little bit further apart in different clumps and manage to overhear it over the din of the music. I like that they're kind of crouching behind innocently. It's not as if they're they're there just to just specifically to hear they're there to be with one another and kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. gossip and, you know, talk and be with and be with their sisters. And they happen to overhear this. And I just love the way that kind of all plays out. Yeah. The rejection on her face in that scene is pretty cutting. Um, And it's only there for a microsecond. I think that's what makes that, that reaction good. If it's overplayed, if it's, Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. Then you're like, okay, calm down. Like you just met this guy. (laughs) I know it's bad, but like, it just, she, he's a jerk. So what? Right. And she just lets it pass over her face for a second. And then the mask kind of goes back up and she's like, whatever, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go on with my life. And I think that makes her a character we respect that she's able to Mm -hmm. take that in and move on and be like, forget this guy, especially being a Mm -hmm. woman at that period of time in history. And I think that really helps. One other terrific scene I did want to note really quickly was the the conversation between Elizabeth and her her best friend, um, Mariah, after Mariah Lucas agrees to marry Mr. Collins. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, where Elizabeth is on the swing and she's swinging around yeah. and just kind of idly. And then her, her friend pops into the scene and it's another nice look at Elizabeth from another perspective because she has all kinds of privilege that even her kind of class contemporary um, does not have, who's more plain looking, is not strikingly beautiful, um, comes from a poor family. And she, you know, Lizzie kind of says, how could you? And she's like, you don't understand. I'm very practical. I don't have many choices. This is my choice. How dare you? Which I think is a conversation that probably takes place between women more often than people think. Um, And I thought it was a great um, deep look at female friendship in that moment. That was one of the scenes apparently that Emma Thompson rewrote. Which oh, I think you okay. can kind of see her hand. Up. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I really enjoy that scene because I think it gives it gives us a reality check at the, at the mm-hmm. world that she's living in. Like, remember how lucky you are uh, in mm-hmm. this situation that you're being sought after and that you have options. You know, like she mm-hmm. kind of talks about like I'm this old. I don't want to be a burden to my family. I have to take yeah. this opportunity because it's arisen. So please, you know, don't sit here and tell me like, oh, I'm so much better than this because I'm not better than this, and this is what I want, and you need to respect that. And it it's don't a good, judge me. Yeah, exactly. So that's the perfect transition uh, because we're now moving into the theme, and the theme I gave you was judgment. Um, so how do you feel like that played in as you were watching the movie? It's funny. It's it's one of those phrases, pride and prejudice, that you've heard for such a long time. Um, you know, it's just one of these cultural markers. And so the words almost become meaningless to you. But it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like that terrible kind of walking dead moment. Like in the end, they realize they're all the walking <laughs> uh, dead. It's like the head of your website any, would be so pleased with you right now. <laughs> I got that in. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you watch it and you're like, it really is about pride and prejudice. Yeah, so and so before you continue, I almost I yeah. almost did either pride or prejudice, but I'm like, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not going to be the guy who does an episode on pride and prejudice and prejudice. <laughs> like we're not we're not going there. Yeah, but it, it switches back and forth. I are they both pride? Are they both prejudice? Is one one or the yep. other? 
Yeah, I mean, I think they're both they're both definitely both of those things at different mm-hmm. points in the story. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I chose the I chose kind of looking at snap judgments because especially that scene we just talked about with her listening in kind of behind the bleachers there, like he has made mm-hmm. a serious snap judgment and an error in judgment. And she does the same thing to him. You mentioned earlier that like, well, mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to talk to him because he's rich, whatever. Like, or, and she's not taking him. And in... does he not even really feel that way? He's just saying it because that's what's expected of him right yeah absolutely and i think she she can be pretty prideful too like especially Mm -hmm. like after she gets you know she gets that rejection and gets her feelings hurt rightly like from then on it's just like nope you know and she never really lets up really until the end like she's always she is always one like as far as the conversation goes is she wants to twist the knife like she wants and there's even a line in the movie where like he kind of stymies her for a second and she says i cannot mock that like you know so she's always always yeah and that's the only way you can undercut that right i mean it really is as someone who is that snarky uh the really um, the secret to undercutting that is to be totally genuine and i think that's (laughs) what makes despite all of his faults and all of his awkwardness i think that's what makes darcy so endearing is that in mm. those moments with him, with her, he is saying what he feels and what he believes, mm-hmm. even if it comes off inappropriate and awkward, like he is trying. And I think maybe mm-hmm. that's another reason we root for them, because he's really making, even if his best effort isn't that great, he's still making it. Mm-hmm. And that's and certainly more than someone like Collins, who knows he's just depending on where and how he was born. So like that comparison mm-hmm. helps us like Darcy even more. All right. Um, so this is a movie that I was very surprised by, something I really enjoyed. And I'm kind of glad I watched this one first and not the BBC one, because I would hate to watch the BBC one and then watch this and be like, well, that was fucking terrible. This is, you're not Mr. Darcy. I, I don't need this in my life. So I feel like I'm doing this uh, in the right order, even if it's not quite in order as far as time goes. Uh, but I'm glad you watched it and didn't hate it. <laughs> you know, I kind of I kind of messaged you on a I whim. I liked it a lot. I'm still riding on the high. I watched it yesterday nice. and I still have all those endorphins That's going excellent. through my system. I don't know what it is. Because a little behind the scenes, I kind of messaged you kind of on a whim because I've been wanting to get you back on the show now that we got Skype mm-hmm. Skype working correctly. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, well, what do you think of Pride and Prejudice? And you were like... Oh man, you asked the right person. I am so ready. I was like, oh, this is great. I had no idea. I just wanted you on the show. This all worked out. So I'm glad (laughs) it wasn't this like awful experience for you (laughs) because we weren't doing the BBC version. Um, So the last thing we have to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with, which is Tulip Fever. And we'll see if we do a Mm -hmm. review on this. We'll see if it actually comes out. But what did you think of the trailer for Tulip Fever? Uh, (laughs) It did not look that great to me. (laughs) It's the greatest sound. (laughs) (laughs) Oh... It almost, you know, what's funny is, have you ever seen those um, book trailers like James Patterson's, you know, whatever, <laughs> yes. the legal brief, and then they, <laughs> it's just all these, all these stock images like a rose and a briefcase, and there's an umbrella in the rain. It felt a little bit like that to me. It felt sort of like a, a filmic adaptation of like a, a book commercial, um, which I guess it is. Right. But um, yeah, I knew nothing about the book, to be honest. Oh, I never um, heard of the book before I found out about the movie. I'm really interested in the time period. So I, I guess right. historically where most of my interest um, lies with that film. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I do think they could do a lot of things with that. And I like um, Christoph Waltz a lot. Sure. How could you not? I mean, he yeah, he's great. A lot of fun in that role. 
Yeah, so I watched uh, I watched this trailer and I wasn't like wowed by it. And this just goes to show you <laughs> how little comes out at this time of the year that this was the absolute <laughs> uh, best option. But I like a lot of this cast. I like uh, I like Dane DeHaan. I, it seems like I'm one of the few people who who does. I re- I really think that he's he's got some like real good untapped potential that no one has really kind of figured out how to use him. I think Alicia McCander. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, so I feel like this may be another miscasting of Dane DeHaan, uh, but we'll see. Uh, I really like Alicia Vikander. I also like Holiday Granger. Okay. She uh, she was in a film version of Great Expectations, and she was kind of perfect. Uh, in that movie, and you mentioned Christoph Waltz, mm-hmm. but there's also people like, you know, Zach Galifianakis is in this movie randomly, That's right. and, and I'm like, I what? Saw that. What is happening? But also Judy Dench. So, and you know, if you told me ten years ago that Zach Galifianakis and Judy Dench were going to be in the same movie, I'm not sure I would have. I'm not sure I would have taken that bet. But here we are. Um, so I'm you just, don't think I, Zach Galifianakis would have either. No, absolutely not. And I just, I'm kind of, I'm walking into this, and this may not be the best way to walk into a movie, but I'm walking in just hoping for the best. Like, please just don't be terrible. Uh, and the fact that yeah. it's that it's been like two years and it hasn't been released does not give me a lot of hope that it's not going to be terrible. But I, I really do like, I do, I do like period films. Like I have kind of a mm-hmm. soft spot in my heart for them. So hopefully Definitely. that will be enough to kind of, push this through but we'll see <laughs> it kind of reminds me of one of those movies like i don't know if you've ever had this experience where you end up watching a movie on a plane and it's oh, yeah. like never a movie that you had thought you would like in any way <laughs> right. and at the end you were like that was pretty good yep yeah i think this could be a that was pretty good moment. this is a plane movie okay yeah here's something a, it might be a plane movie. i'll take it at this point <laughs> that would be fun absolutely all right so uh one more time before you take off uh why don't you tell people um how to contact you on twitter or maybe something they should check out on audiences everywhere yeah on twitter i'm dream song 77 and on audiences everywhere this morning actually we published um, a story that i got really sucked into when i was kind of researching um, missing person person cases which is the case of connie converse who was a folk singer in greenwich village in the 1960s kind of predated Dylan, um, had some measure of success and then completely pulled out of the spotlight and then disappeared. And she's never been heard from. So I, I told that story. It's kind of a, just a short, brief kind of look at a, a much larger story, but I'd never heard of her before this. And I think other people would be as fascinated as, as I was by her story. Nice. Excellent. And I, you know, I just want to put in my plug. This is totally biased because I write for the site Mm -hmm. as well. But I mean, even before I was writing for audiences everywhere, I was reading audiences everywhere. I think it's the one of the best film sites out there, especially if you're not looking for a bunch of hatred and a bunch of F grades and worst movies of the year. If you're looking for film fans who are looking to enjoy movies and write really well about them, you should really check out audiences everywhere and follow them at all right thanks for listening to yet another episode of pop culture case study so this weekend we will be seeing tulip fever and doing a review of that and if you want to connect with the show there's a bunch of great ways to do that you can follow me on twitter at pc case study we are on tumblr facebook pretty much every social media site you can think of just look up pop culture case study or pc case study and you will find us there 
And if you really want to go the extra mile, you can go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate on a per-episode basis. You can get some pretty cool rewards while you support an independent podcast. And if you have your own thoughts and you don't want to limit them to 140 characters on Twitter, feel free to leave me an email. The email address is popculturecasestudy at gmail.com, so that should be pretty easy to remember. All right, so that's it. Until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Yes. This is already so much better. (laughs) I was almost late to the call because I was sitting here and I was like, should I have drunk something first? And then I ran to get wine. Too late. I'm good. Nice. She's a mystery.